Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Starts right now live from the Nasdaq market site overlooking New York City's Times Square. I'm Melissa Lear. Traders on the desk are Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight, check out shares of Boeing getting slammed today after Bank of America downgrades the stock as the analyst warns it won't just be a simple software fix. We've got the details. Plus, the IPO boom is starting to look like an IPO bust as Lyft is back below its IPO price and Pinterest sets its price range below its last valuation. So how do you know which unicorns are safe to buy? We will explain. We start off with the markets on the edge of glory. As the S&P 500 is within reach of its all-time highs, check out the sectors that are back from the brink. Their forward price-to-earnings ratios are at or near where they were when the market peaked. Energy slightly above its former valuation, tech in line, and financials just below. So since we are back where we were right before the market started tanking last fall. Our stock's fairly valued right now, and with earnings right around the corner, will that push these groups higher, Tim? I was on the edge of falling off my chair for listening to that music, sorry. But, um, <laughs> and for that, of that's course. what you get. Of course. So if, if you think about what's different about the market now and possibly those highs, uh, because the valuations are the same, um, one thing is that rates are significantly different. So if you think about it, back in November, uh, or actually, was, I guess it was really late September before we went into this vol spike and obviously a big growth concern, is you actually had a case where, you know, you really were uh, three and a quarter-ish somewhere on rates. So lower rates should argue that equities should actually be more attractive. The bottom line here is it's all about relative growth expectations. As we go into this earnings season, banks are out on Friday. You're actually going to get a couple companies midweek, Fastenal being one of them, which will give you some insight into industrial and and construction and spending. I think you've got a sense here that actually industrial and and those that are related to what seems to be more of the global cyclical side, including semiconductors, are relative to where they were three months ago, are in a better place. And that, to me, is the more important thing for picking stocks, because relative to themselves, we could have found different times, Mel, where this stock market right here actually looks cheap relative to market highs back in 2016, when the S&P was trading at 19 times. All right, you're a valuation kind of gal. Yes, I am. So how do you factor this all in? Well, I don't know. I mean, you bring up a very good point about interest, interest rates, rates being yeah. where they are, right? And and. And the Fed is at a very, very different place. Very different. Yep, true. I mean, and, and so therefore interest rates are, are where they are. So when I look at some of, those, some of those sectors, though, to be the one that sticks out that is not back near its highs is, is financials, or at least the ones that I own. And I'm, you know, we have earnings Friday. We'll start with J.P. Morgan. I'm very optimistic. And I think last quarter they got hurt on trading revenues being down. I think that we'll see trading revenues back up. It's a lumpy kind of thing anyway, but I don't know why they get penalized the way they do when they're down. But I'm optimistic. I know rates are lower, and that historically has not been good for banks, pressure on that interest margin. And growth's lower. Right. I mean, isn't that the reason why the Fed is where the Fed is right now? Because the economics, the economic data is supposed to be softening. So wouldn't that be a headwind for financials? But if you look at the multiple they trade at, right, I think it's already at a, it's already at a low multiple. So I think that's in there somewhat. But also it is global growth. And if you look at something like a Bank of America, very little exposure 
overseas anyway. So I, I don't know. I like Bank America, J.P. Morgan, Citibank. I'm long them all. I think there's room on the upside. You mentioned tech, and it's worth noting that tech actually closed at an all-time high in today's session. Bank. Yeah, I mean, That's, listen, you know, we've been talking about MAGA for a long time because we know that those four names, Microsoft, Microsoft Apple, Google, Amazon, yeah, I mean, but you think bad. about the, the, the weight in all the major indices, and obviously Microsoft has been outperforming. Apple closed above $200 today for the first time in a while. Feels like it's headed on back there. I just want to make one, one more point. We talk about some of these sectors. You know, your financials are not acting well. Um, tech is obviously leading. We needed that sort of leadership. We've obviously had some good um, cyclical sort of stuff. We have, we have groups that are really expensive. We have uh, consumer staples. You saw Procter & Gamble close a new all-time high today, upgraded. So there's a lot of weird cross-currents. I think the most important one is if, if we are in a different place and rates are lower and all this sort of stuff and we're seeing a reflation of growth, why is the Russell 2000 8% off of its all-time highs? Why is it yet to break out of this range that it's been over the last couple months? To me, I and actually... volume's been extremely light. Volume's yeah. been extremely light. Energy, you have a civil war in Libya. You have Venezuela, it's not going away. So you have a lot of these macro things that are pushing the subsector higher, but it's not necessarily improved economic data here because then the Fed would not be where the Fed is. That's got to affect right. everything if growth is slowing. But you like energy. I like energy for those geopolitical yeah, reasons geopolitical, alone. But not because of the so, fundamental change in the not industry. Not because of the fundamental change in the industry. I, think, I still think we have a supply glut, not a supply deficit. And I think that the U.S. is making up whatever the other countries are lagging in. Well, you know, what was interesting overnight is China introduced a number of new stimulus measures over yep. the weekend as well as overnight um, last night. And the markets didn't really react no, too they, much. They were actually and so down what, small. Does that tell you that things are priced in? And if so, if that's priced in, then is the boost to overall growth that the that the oil industry is benefiting from is that priced in as well so at this point? I, I just think you know we've we've talked on this show. We spent more time talking about the local Chinese markets than we yeah. were our own markets at some point over the last couple of weeks. So I, I just think that they were very overbought. I actually love the way EM traded today. In fact, it, it closed flat on the day, but it's working through overbought conditions. And I actually think that if you look at the PMIs and again the spread between uh, the developed world and the emerging markets, the spread on PMIs is actually really favoring emerging markets here. Um, I would also argue that I think uh, the developed world has found this place where I think we started the bottom because I just think central bank activity will give you that. Back to energy. Look, energy valuations may be where they were at the highest, but the energy earnings revisions momentum is significantly better. Okay. Energy companies are not where they were three, six months ago. I think actually with the tailwind of higher prices, first of all, their, their earnings are uh, and the short interest in the stocks are both things that mean I think this sector can go higher. And, and I, you know, Steve, you're right. There is a supply disruption dynamic out there uh, and you're concerned about supply but there have been times where we've had much more significant supply disruption dynamics out there, and the oil market never moved. Uh, and I think people have a lot more confidence, actually, in, in the discipline within OPEC and non-OPEC, and I stay there. So can we go back to the S&P 500? We spent a lot of time talking about, oh, were there X percent from all-time highs? I think it's a foregone conclusion that we're going to touch those prior highs at some point. Really? Here's the really interesting wow. issue, though. Oh. Think about how um, new highs Ray work, in a way. No, well, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, we got another one and a half percent, people. Go for it. Get on. No, my point is... Is, is like if Have you're buying it, it for the breakout here, you're doing it wrong, right? So in Q4 2018, the S&P 500 from late uh, September to the lows in Christmas dropped 20%, right? So now we're up like 20-some percent. We're, you know, in, in what feels like a straight line in one quarter also. And it just doesn't have the gusto to get a meaningful breakout. We're going to need to see a big consolidation up in this 28, 2900 area and have some real catalysts for you're the market also, to break out. That, and that's where it comes down to EPS. Everyone's right. talking about earnings not being there and is that in the numbers already so it's eps and it's guidance and if we see eps 
U.S. beat anything other than an earnings recession uh-huh. and negative, then that's going to be constructive for the overall stock market. That's where I could see us heading towards 3,000 in the S&P. If we're flat and guidance is terrible, then we go down from there. That, I mean, that almost seems binary to a point. I think it is binary. So where, where do, you, think, where do so, you stand? How are you positioned in the markets then? So I am not as long as I was. I have tailed off on this last ramp up. I got, uh, I, I cut back my holdings on a lot of my tech plays. I cut back my holdings as a percentage pretty much across the board, and I'm waiting for earnings to decide whether I get back in or whether I continue to... So would you rather well, buy it... To, sorry, did not would you rather... No, no, you go ahead, would you rather? i let you do it. Yeah, right, jump in at, you know, 2950. I, I, I would rather buy at 3000 Buy at 3000 yes. uh-huh, and yeah. then not have the downside from here. Correct. So, okay. uh, to me, this is really about a couple of things. The, the market positioning, it, of course, is very different than it was a couple months ago, but the sentiment to me is is still going into this earnings season. Now the bar, I think, is extremely low. We've actually seen some revisions come down. I think we go into this earnings sector with expectations as low as we've had them probably in, in a couple of years. Are expectations uh, low given that markets are so high? I, I think people have looked at I mean, what, what corporate, what C-suite, uh, what CFO has the incentive right now to be going out of his way to talk about uh, the outlook for his business? I, I think there's still an enormous amount of uncertainty. Therefore, this is really, to me, the earnings season with the pain trade that's been up because most people have not expected this to be where it is. I actually think that you could see some surprises. All right. Well, as the tech sector closed as a record high today, our next guest says the comeback rally may be getting ready to cool off. Chart master Carter Worth is over at the plaza to break it all down. Hey, Carter. Sure. So let's uh, look at a few things. What we have, of course, is the uh, mother of all V's. It's virtually perfect. You can see it. We've got our plunge. We have a ricochet. And it is not random when you get back to a former high. Typically, you contend with it before you can exceed it. So, in fact, just to show you how precise these levels are, the peak, it was a Wednesday. It was October 3rd, 2018, 1338, spot 90. This was also a Wednesday, April 3rd, just a week ago, 1338, spot 77. We closed one point below those two levels today. The point being that when you get back to a high, more often than not, rather than breaking out, you have to contend with the high, which is to say you're getting memory from here. People who bought poorly who would love to get their money back, and then you're getting memory from here, people who bought well, who want to book their gains. And all of that congestion that happens at a former top. Let's move forward and take a look at one of two things. Now, it's, of course, percentages work differently on the way down and the way up. You have a 25% plunge, you have a 32% recovery, and again, unchanged, virtually unchanged on a six-month basis. If you look at it this way, there's the line. There are two things that happen in principle, backing and filling or backing away, which is that we set up a double top and you do get this kind of action. Either way, I think this is actually a better sale here than it is anything else. A few stocks uh, that there are always good ones and bad ones. Workday, a little hot, a little too far above trend. In principle, when you trade too far above trend, you check back, you check back, you check back, and I think you're due for a check back. Another one that's similar, that's also a bit hot, is Intuit. And what we know is that uptrends are characterized by counter-trend sell-offs, and we're due for one as well. By way of comparison, consider the third, uh, which I like a lot, I mean, this is just, all those other stocks are back at their highs. AMAT is just starting to bottom. So we have all the principles of how something tops, 
how something bottoms, how something tops, how something bottoms. Like this a lot, we think that's the kind of thing you want to do in this market. Not go after the ones that are at the high, find those that have lagged and play them for catch up. All right, Carter, come on over. Evan will bring the chair over. Some happy music. Thank you, Evan. It's our fake uh, game show music. Sorry, no. <laughs> I mean, you give me a bottle cap and a. Sorry, we're low on the candy bag today. <laughs> so no, no, the bag's in trouble tonight. Um, we'll get into that later. Dan said something shocking to me earlier in the show, and that is he said it's a foregone conclusion that the S&P 500 will go back to record highs. Well, True or I mean, false? I would say that's a rounding error, right? Is the foregone okay. conclusion it can back away 2%, 2%. it can go up 1%. I guess the issue is this. Equities globally peaked on the 26th of January, 2018, where 15 months later the S&P is up half a percent. And we know that the DAX, the Cap Carol, the MSA, all country Hello. world index, all of them are below, right? And so from here, you really need the cyclicals, right? You need industrials and financials, some of the core middle and healthcare to come to life. Without that, we're just back to the same issues that we had before, crowding and clustering. Top five stocks are more in the bottom 250. That remains the case. Uh, they can't pull the weight forever. Carter, what do you think? We talked about small caps. I know on Friday and options action, you mentioned it, but you know we still have the Russell 2000 down eight and a half percent from those highs, and it's still consolidating here. Are we going to get a breakout? Um, and what does that mean relative to large caps? Yeah, I mean, I think a perfect pairs trade is actually to be short something like an SMH or uh, the tech sector, however you want to do it, QQ, and play long beta some of the small caps for catch up. It is a financial bet, though, right? Because we know the weighting is so large, financial stocks in the Russell 2000. So, so you think there will be a catch up? On I the think Russell. they catch up. Carter, what, what do you think about, um, you know, an Apple, which has only recently kind of gotten back into favor, a Google, which has largely, you know, been, if anything, of, of kind of the, the mega cap techs, uh, I think, has behaved probably uh, the most conservatively. So as we go into this period where mega cap tech in the past has been actually outperforming because growth has been a concern, don't you have some, some tailwind coming from these mega, mega caps that, that really are, are, I think, are under own? Certainly sentiment is lower than it was the last time. You know what? I think they're particularly good relative to the mid-cap tech. It's those software names like Twilo and Data and Now that have really shot the moon, and those have the most risk. Yeah. I'd much rather pick a, a sort of a slower-moving super-cap name in tech than some of those. So when you look at, we're at the same point we were at 15 months ago. Is the volume different? What What is different? Well, I mean, if you think about what, what it means... you don't care is, about some of the fundamentals. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not different. What we know is that they're, they're, you always have heavier volume on the way down than you do on the way up. I mean, that's just the name. Because when people sell, when they buy, they buy reluctantly. They have limits, and they say, oh, I missed it. Okay, just make it 2,000 instead of four. When they sell, they say, get me out, right? They want to, they dump with abandon. But the, the principle is this, that if equities have made no progress in 15 months, one of two interpretations. That means how refreshed they are. Multiples are building, and they're cheap. Or what does it say about risk assets that equities have made no progress in 15 months, and yet to make no progress and have massive drawdowns if one was producing a result like that means money. It's a terrible result, right? Having a drawdown of 20%, having one of 12% a year ago, it's uninspiring. And that's the big issue. Are we in the process of a major top for equities and a major top in the economy? No one knows. I have my biases, as I'm sure you do. But uh, the risk, of course, is that we've come a long way. Carter, thank you. Thank Good you. To see you. Carter Braxtonworth of Cornerstone. All right, so industrials will be key in uh, during earnings season. What is the one stock that you would look for? What's on your radar? So I, I think you have to look for, we nailed it in the beginning of the show, you have to look for tech companies. But I also believe that a lot of these names that he's talking about that have went to the moon and popped 
people are making room for their uh, in their portfolio with the IPOs. That's a never-ending list so that's coming. So there's an ATM effect. So I thing. think there's an ATM effect. So I would watch those companies that aren't the mega cap tech sector. Watch the other ones because you could see the, see them being uh, liquidated to make room for them. Coming up, the fallout for Boeing continues, and we will tell you why Wall Street is saying it could be about to get worse. Plus, Fast Money friend Tony Dwyer is here to play a game. New one, Mythbusters, Market Risk Edition, which fears are just overblown, which are just starting to blow up. He'll join us. We are live from Times Square in New York City. Much more Fast Money right after this. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Welcome back to Fast Money. The Boeing fallout continues. Shares under pressure as Wall Street says there's no quick fix to its 737 MAX problem. Our Phil LeBeau is live in Chicago with more on this. Phil. And Melissa, let me show you why so many analysts cut their estimates following Friday's production cut from Boeing. Now, if you're an analyst, you went into this year saying, look, they're building 52 per month. By the middle of this year, we think they're going to go up to 57. Uh Uh-uh. Now they're down to 42 per month. And as a result, analysts have been slashing their estimates. The consensus on Friday was for full year earnings of $19.90. Guess where it was at earlier today? 1877, and it could be moving a little bit lower since we haven't gotten all of the analyst reports in. And that's why when you take a look at shares of Boeing, keep in mind that this company will be giving its full year guidance likely, if there's a change, we'll likely get that in a couple of weeks when the company reports earnings. That's coming up on Wednesday, April 24th. At the same time, this is all about free cash flow when you look at uh, Boeing. And that's why Cowan and company out with a note today saying in terms of free cash flow, it's pretty straightforward. Our guess is that Boeing's free cash flow could be near zero, zero in Q1 with red ink in Q2 as 737 inventory ramps. Raymond James also out today as you take a look at shares of Southwest out with a note today uh, downgrading Southwest, but overall saying, look, you know, we still believe in Southwest. We still like Southwest, but that max that, ex- that, that cancellation of flights or not having it on the schedule could extend into the summer months. And remember, summer is the peak flying season, so that would weigh on the revenue uh, potential possibility for, uh, for Southwest if they do not have a full complement of aircraft that they were originally expecting. Melissa, back to you. All right, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau joining us from Chicago on uh, shares of Boeing. Uh, what was interesting that stood out to me within this Bank of America Merrill Lynch note is that they actually lengthened the time that they mm-hmm. expect the grounding to happen yeah. to six to nine months from three to six months. It seems like the first time an analyst on the street has acknowledged that it could take longer than expected. Because remember, we had a parade of analysts come on CNBC shortly after saying, this is going to be a quick fix. They're going to issue software. It's going to be a patch, and off they go, you know, in flight again. And what extends as well on the Bank America piece is the penalties that they have to pay. So margins are going to be under pressure for a longer amount of time. So I don't think that went into the calculus originally. But six to nine—that's a huge increase on a percentage basis when you're talking about free cash flow. Now I get it; it's a stunningly amazing company, but this is a dramatic headwind that we're looking at. It's not over. It's only 16 percent off of its 52-week all-time high. 
Analysts six. sometimes get a really bad rap. Here's a situation where they were all sheep. I mean, what the heck were they waiting for? I mean, like, literally, the, the, it, it just seemed like it was pretty well telegraphed what was going to happen. There were, there were no quick fixes. 350 people died, and it appears like there was some negligent here. So, you know, these, I don't know who the heck wants to get on a, a seven, or one of these planes anytime soon, even after there is a software fix. So we talked about it on Friday. I mean, estimates were still up double-digit earnings and sales. You know, those are going to get slashed yeah, pretty dramatically. Hold- and yes, Tim, they're going to get them back next year, that sort of thing. But what's wrong with putting a stock in the penalty box? We see this time and time again. I just don't know why the stock was trading where it was. And, and I think you're talking about two things. And, and putting a stock in a penalty box is certainly, as you can have it as an outperformer or a market performer, you can have it as an underperform for reasons that are very technical. And then you can put some qualitative nature on it. And in many cases, it's corporate governance. In many cases, it's actually the trajectory of growth, and they're making a call on that. Uh, to me, the fact that analysts waited to, for a cut from 52 to 42 is a very mechanical exercise. As far as I'm concerned, that wasn't announced until Friday. What are they supposed to do? They're going to downgrade earnings. That makes sense to me. Also, last week, we finally got um, some sense that this software fix was going to take another six weeks, that suddenly we were out till June. We weren't supposed to be out until June. So I'm not, you know, I I think the process here to me is normal. Um, 360 on the stock makes sense. The free cash flow for this company is not going to dry up overnight. I realize on a particular quarter it might be light. Uh, Phil has mentioned the ripple effects, the downgrade of Southwest. There's also a downgrade of Spirit Air Systems, which you mentioned right. on the conference call. Hexel was down today, so some of the suppliers right. are starting to feel the effect. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is very dangerous for them, right, because maybe they don't have the wherewithal that a Boeing does, right, so it could be more difficult. The one thing, though, that I want to say on Boeing, though, it seems to me that all the analysts have priced in, they will get this fixed at some point, no, for sure. 100%. And still, and and still so, deliver every single plane they right. projected to l- deliver And in not their lose any deliveries. I find that actually a little bit hard to believe as this goes on. You know all the, you know, the lawsuits are coming. You know we're going to see some damning emails and some sort of deposition. I think there's a lot of bad news that's still to come. And that doesn't seem to me to be priced in. That maybe there is, you know, that maybe this won't be the $600 billion plus future the way that it's priced in right now. For more on, Bo- more on Boeing and uh, what its fate means for the markets, you can head over to CNBC.com. And still ahead, despite the market's climb back to all-time highs or close to them, some of the biggest threats to stocks haven't gone anywhere. And top strategist Tony Dwyer will tell you what is really keeping him up at night. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Much more Fast Money right after this. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Well, we are just within reach of new highs. Uh, some signs may be pointing to a rest in the rally. Let's get to Mike Santoli at the New York Stock Exchange for more on this. Hey, Mike. Hi, Melissa. I guess you could argue that today was a little bit of a rest. It was a pretty drowsy session uh, today. The market seemed very settled. And in fact, over the last couple of weeks, it's had a bunch of days like this. Maybe it's taking micro naps uh, on its way up. But I do think it's an interesting moment for this conversation as to whether the market can accelerate higher or needs to retrench a little bit, because we've had this six-month round trip that is almost perfectly synchronous. If you look at it, six months ago today, October 8th, uh, it was a Monday. The S&P closed at 28.84. Here we are today, 28.95 down 20%, up 20%. It seems it would seem perverse if we didn't at least make a closer shot at the uh, at the all-time highs a percent and a half up from here. Then the question becomes what does first quarter earnings season have to say about this? The market has acted as if it's willing to look through the noise of the first quarter, uh, basically staying supported, going toward those more resilient cash flow heavy mega cap growth stocks, defensives, things like that. And then the semis come around, it's been rotating in a very healthy way. But the question is can we really still count on the second half comeback? Because right now, the only reason the market doesn't look more expensive is because the forward estimates include a big inflection point higher in earnings in the second half of this year. And by the way, the 12-month forward earnings uh, also includes the first quarter of 2020, when it's always too optimistic at this stage. So I think that's where we're coming together. A rest makes sense, but if we're going to have an upside overshoot, anything like what we had in December to the downside, I don't think we're close to that, guys. All right, Mike, thank you. Mike Santoli at the NYSE. Well, Wall Street's keeping a close watch on what would halt a market rip, and our next guest says some risks are being overblown. Let's bring in Tony Dwyer of Canaccord Genuity. Tony, always great to have you here. Great this to be back. This is sort of a, a new game. We're going to go through these risks one at a time, and then you tell us what you think they're being overblown or blowing up. It's a new game. I mean, um, how big is that? First, hard. first market myth. Very hard. The yield curve is inverting, and that should be a concern. Well, that one's overblown. Or okay. it, it's MythBuster, let's say, busted instead of overblown. But the reason it is, is even <laughs> it hasn't gone negative. Uh, you haven't even inverted the 210 spread, two-year and the 10-year spread. However, um, people are focused on, you did invert the three-month and 10-year, so which one do you use? I don't know. The rest of credit's doing fine, so I'm not as worried about it. But even if it did invert in the next 15 minutes, I cover it every, <laughs> every show I'm on. You guys are so sick of it. It's a buy signal, not a sell signal. The market's up a median 21% over the course of the next 18 and a half months when it does invert. So even if it does invert, it's not a time to get out. It's a time where you get that final blow-off move yeah, to the JP upside. Morgan just had a note out saying that it, it is the twos, tens, and not the three months, tenure that we should be focused on. I don't want so, to take up too much time, yeah. but there's a reason for it. Um, right. The three-month tenure is how a bank funds their money, sure. right? A two-ten is how shadow banking or non-traditional banking funds their money. Such a big portion of banking is now done in the shadow banking arena. That's how they get their money. You have to look at both. All right. Next myth, global growth slowdown. Well, this is a good one that we've also covered over the course of the last few shows. Timmy and I have talked about it quite a bit, and that is um, it's overblown. Or busted. And it's a myth buster. I'm going to go with busted. Come on, play the game. Yeah, I mean, we have a worse than guy. You're worse than guy. Is there a bust in visual? Is there even a bust in visual? There's no bust. It's always going to be overblown. You say whatever you want, Tony. No, it's all right. Go ahead. Do it. Okay. And the reason it's overblown is because the OECD leading indicators have, on a sequential basis, been turning for some time, for the last three months. So if you look at the month-to-month basis of all the global leading indicators that are positive, You've seen an inflection. Do you ever notice, Mel, that 
people only talk about the rate of change when it's really, the data is really great and it's turning lower because it's scary. They never talk about it when it's really bad and inflecting higher. It's really bad and inflecting higher. The time to be scared of global growth is when it's really too exciting and everybody's talking about the synchronized global recovery and all the global monetary authorities about to tighten. It's opposite day today. All right. Next uh, myth, See how you do earnings here. recession. <laughs> Tony, on, what do you yeah, say? Come on, Tony. I'm scared now. Go ahead. Um, I, it is overblown. Thank you. <laughs> well played. Earnings recession, well, I'm challenged. It, the earnings recession is really interesting because what we found is this cycle since the first quarter of 2009, Every quarter from the first day of earnings reporting season to the last company reports is revised higher by a median 3.5%. So if the current S&P earnings estimate is for a loss of 2%, April 1st being the first day of reporting season of the new quarter, that would suggest a 1.5% growth rate when it's all said and done. 80% of the time in this cycle, you've been up at least 2% from the first day to the last day. So it's somewhere between zero and one and a half percent. So again, I think the, the earnings recession over, not to mention that the top line growth is going to be up 5% by consensus. In 2016, top line was down and the bottom line was down. Okay. Final market myth, the Fed hiking rates. This one is is um, scary. This one could be scary. The That's one, not an answer. Is that you? Scary's not an answer. It's not an answer either. I mean, beware. Beware. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't get the game. So it's beware. A, and the reason to beware, I'm getting an He's channeling guy tonight. Do you feel it? It's really. He hasn't had one right, even though, even though he's right. He's right, but he's not right. The game is hard. So the beware is people are saying that if the Fed cuts rate, they quote unquote know something and it's going to be a scary thing for the economy. I would say it's uh, it's the opposite. I think the scary thing is if the economic data gets too good and the Fed gets worried about inflation ticking up again globally and you start to fear global monetary tightening and tighter conditions. I think that would be the scarier thing is if the Fed again leans to tightening versus the dovish pivot that they've shown. So tightening would be challenging for the markets. Only, I mean, interest rates go higher. The, it affects equ- equity risk premium, things like for that, sure. like that sort of fallout. Yeah. And last year, I didn't. I wasn't as worried as the market ended up cratering in the fourth quarter because you had a little bit of room. The yield curve was still steep. The yield curve now, the two ten spread, isn't steep. So if the Fed does lift rates again and the ten year stays around where it is, that's your that's your signal to you know you're going to get the final blow off. It wouldn't be an immediate sell signal, but it would certainly be a signal that lending and credit's about to tighten up pretty quickly. Okay, Tony, good to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks Mel. for feebly playing the game with us. That was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> panic or ingenuity. <laughs> Now he, anyway. look, I mean, these, these games are tough, Mel. I mean, they what can really I tell are. you? Are they? It, it, it was his game. Overblown or beware. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> anyway. Of the myths. Do you agree with Tony? Any of them? Yeah, I think it's uh, how do we transmit it to the stock market, right? We just had that whole conversation about the S&P 500. We had the small caps lagging. We have tech being drawn up by the big names. I look at the S&P 500 since the start of 2018. The average price has been 2750. You know, so here we are. We're about 100 points north of that. At one point, we're a couple hundred points south of that in the last six months or whatever. And I just don't think. Think about when we got in late September back up. We made a new high, right, from the from January in 2018. It just didn't have it. There was too much complacency. There was just too much groupthink going on. And then we just dropped 20% in a straight line. So if you think the S&P 500, given everything we know, all that myth busting going on over there, up 15% of the year, you think we're done and dusted. We're going to be north of 3,000 sometime. That's just not likely to happen. But but the Fed is different than where they were when we went through 2018. So, I mean, and, and so Tony's point, though, is very important because they could change that. 
they, they, the beware there, watch, I played the game right. Beware <laughs> means that actually, look, um, rates are lower because I think policy is there, not because the economy reflects where rates are. But I think that the, in terms of what the market is factoring in, a rate hike is nowhere there. And so zero that could chance. be a so, huge risk. Yeah, right? zero chance on a rate hike. But what I found interesting on Tony's comments was if there's a 5% top line growth, I think that will be enough for people to stay in the market and push it higher. Five uh, percent would be very nice revenue growth. I actually, I think the market would do just fine with that. You'd be happy. I would be happy. Coming up, Pinterest hitting the road today and pricing its IPO range below its last round of funding. We'll tell you what that means for the company as it gets ready for its public debut. Plus, as Pinterest and a handful of other tech unicorns hit the market this year, Steve here will give you three tips for trading the IPO boom. Much more fast money right after this. Money Pinterest hitting the road as the latest tech unicorn gearing up to make its market debut for the latest. Let's head out to Leslie Picker. Leslie. That's right, Melissa. Pinterest kicking off its IPO roadshow today, setting terms that showcase the company at a $10 billion enterprise value at the high end of the range. Now, that number, an apples-to-apples comparison with its latest private funding round, which value the company at $12 billion. So its IPO could come in below its latest private fundraising round. Now, today's roadshow really kicks off meetings with investors seeking to pitch more than a billion dollars worth of stock to them. fundamentals showcase a company that's really gaining traction on the top line, upwards of 50% top line growth for the first quarter. The company revealed in projections today in its amended filing. Uh, But on the bottom line, we're still seeing losses at this company. And monthly active users, those the growth in MAUs have been slowing in recent quarters. Now, also in the IPO world is another story that's been catching traction over the course of the weekend as well as today. And that is a letter that Lyft and its underwriters sent to Morgan Stanley, accusing them of helping investors in Lyft circumvent their lockup agreements. This is a little complicated, but essentially a lockup agreement requires investors to stay economically exposed to the company for the duration of the six months that the agreement holds. And they're saying that Morgan Stanley helped them either short or reduce their economic exposure in defiance of that agreement. Now, Morgan Stanley says they did not do that in a statement to CNBC. They said they did not market or sell any type of security that would reduce a Lyft exposure, a Lyft investor's exposure, Melissa. All right. Leslie, thank you. Leslie Picker joining us uh, from JP Morgan. Dan, what do you make of uh, the IPO fallout? You know, the Pinterest one will be really interesting to see. I think it seems like some rational pricing for a very interesting company. And when you look at their uh, losses relative to their revenues and their revenue growth, it's really not that um, It's not that. But they're going in the right direction. Yeah, they're, 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 they're clearly going in the right direction. So that one's going to be really interesting. I think the Uber stuff is really interesting. You know, let me tell you something. Morgan Stanley didn't make too many friends as they're getting ready to price what will be the biggest IPO in, you know, one of the biggest ones ever as they get ready with this Uber one. It's a company that lost more than a billion dollars last year. You know, this is Uber. And this has the potential, in my opinion. They didn't make friends, sorry. Because of what they might, have, might, might not have done with Lyft. Okay, so now they have to price this Uber deal. It's going to be massive. It's going to be 5x um, Lyft. And I just say to myself, God, this thing has the potential to break the tech market's back if it doesn't go well. What does Uber that mean? Deal. 
Well, listen, break the tech markets back. You know, sentiment got destroyed when that Facebook IPO did not go well, right? Back in the day, it really right. did, and we didn't see some IPOs oh, you for think a while. There's going to be some technical errors. No, in how I, it I just creates? think that it's such a big deal at such a high valuation uh-huh. relative to everything else. It's a gorilla a, in the room. If yeah. that doesn't go well, it yeah. takes that's, the that's kind of what I mean. I, I think it has market. the potential to take high valuation tech much. So if it lower. traded like Lyft, aka breaking the IPO price repeatedly then that would be regarded There's as a lot more investors that. in it. There's a lot more people that are concentrated in. There's some big PE funds and, you know, venture. I mean, so you think about it. It's just the tentacles go in much uh, broader places. All right. As the parade marches on during what is widely expected to be a record year for the IPO market, how can you spot the winners and the losers? Grasso here. Head over to the plaza with the more you know. So I wish it was as easy as uh, these, you know, four things to spot the winners and the losers. So you have to do your due diligence on these. You have to make your personal risk uh, reward choices on your your own. But you want to look at the quality of the management team right off the bat. So you want to just do your investigative work. Who's running the team? Who was the founder? Is he involved still? Is she involved still? That will be the first one that you really want to pay attention to. Then, of course, how big a deal can it be potentially? What's the total addressable market? So are, are we trying to solve something that doesn't need fixing? Are we trying to do something that's just going to raise money for the company? Or is there a real need within the marketplace to do that total addressable market? I think this is the most important thing. Size of the float. If you bring to market too many shares, it's supply demand like the whole stock market is based off of. If there's a flood of shares that comes to the market, you're not going to see that IPO successful. If you have a very shallow supply of it, you could see a pop on the IPO day. Valuation. Very difficult. It's difficult enough to value uh, uh, public companies that are trading right now, let alone private companies. So look to see what the comps are. Look to see what the companies that are already public, what they trade at, and that'll help you evaluate the private companies a lot more efficiently. Does anybody have any questions for Grosso? I do. Oh, okay. Go ahead. All right. If you're just a private, you know, just a regular retail investor and you ask for shares on the IPO and they give you shares, should you be concerned? (laughs) Uh, I don't know if you should be concerned or not, but the the fact is you have to decide on whether you want to hold those shares or not hold those shares. And what you do get a lot of is a lot of the major funds get these shares allocated to them and they want to flip out of them on the same day. So you want to see price action on IPO day. If you see chunky sellers, that's, a, that's, that's telling you that major funds are liquidating their, their share, whatever that was given to them on an allocation basis. What's a chunky seller? What's a chunky seller? Is, yeah. Are you asking me? Because I yeah. can't see your face. I, I would say a <laughs> chunky seller is high, high, uh, you know, market cap or market uh, under management assets under management. I see. So you're looking at, you know, anywhere from billions of dollars. You're not right. looking at someone who's getting a smaller allocation, running a fund that's less than a hundred million dollars. It's guys that are running, uh, guys and girls that are running billion-dollar companies. All right. Thanks, Grasso. Based on what Grasso just outlined and looking at the IPO pipeline, what piques your interest, Tim? Um, in an IPO? Sorry, about yeah, or the, no, or the pipeline. In, which in of the these pipeline, stocks which, coming? Yeah, which unicorn? Um, actually, it's Uber. Um, just, just because of the size of the deal, there may be sovereign wealth funds, there will be strategics, there will be other people that I think probably come to the party on this one. I don't know where it's going to be priced. Steve, I mean, sorry, Steve. Dan has talked about where you've got an enormous... Um, 
hangover for the market that's the potential here, and we've seen this before, but I, 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 they have to handle this well. But who's the incremental buyer? This is a company that's raised $24 billion of debt in equity over the last you know, five or seven years or whatever, and I just don't know who comes in and says, oh, it's finally public at $120 billion valuation. I got to get in right here. You know what I mean? I think there's a potential for an overhang in this name for a good, good long while. But, but you have been very outspoken of transportation as yeah. a service being a new investment category, um, and mega cap, by the way, is a self-fulfilling dynamic here, right? Haven't we seen this with some of the biggest companies in the world? They've been seen not only as defensive, but it's where you can put liquidity to work. Yeah, well, I'll just say this. So Amazon's the one you're getting at. And for 10 years, Jeff Bezos convinced the world that he was going to reinvest any profit that he had into these other levers. It worked. There's no reason to believe that diverting away from transportation as a service into all these other things that Uber wants to do is going to be a home run. We're kind of early. It's almost like 1999 for Bezos right now saying, hey, stick with me right here. And don't forget, Dara's not the founder of this company either. So, uh, you know, to me, I think the jury's still out at 120 billion bucks if that's where it comes. All right. So I had GE falling off a cliff today after top analyst Stephen Tusa of J.P. Morgan downgraded the stock, slashed his price target to just five bucks, the lowest on Wall Street. Is a GE nightmare starting all over again? Plus, this tech stock is soaring, and one trader just bet more than a million dollars that it could rally another 20% in just the next few months. We'll give you the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out GE shares falling about 5% today and a downgrade to underweight from J.P. Morgan. Stephen Tusa. It's our call of the day. Tusa hammering the stock, writing, we believe many investors are underestimating the severity of the challenges and underlying risks at GE while overestimating the value of small positives. He cut his price target to 5 bucks. That implies a 50% pullback after the stock rallied near, nearly 40% to start the year. That $5 price target, by the way, by far the lowest on the street. And Tusa's previous price target of $6 was already well below the average analyst target of a little more than 11 bucks a share. So is Tusa on the mark with this downgrade? Is there, could there still be upside, though, in GE? So I think that Tusa hit the ball out of the park with his call originally. The stock was down close to, what, between 75 and 80%. And now, since it's bottomed and bounced, it actually bounced 75% off the bottom. I think he's trying to thread the needle here. I don't know what the risk-reward is. He, he looks like a genius on that original call. I don't know if the risk-reward there is there for him now to start banging the drum even more about $5 versus $6. To me, I don't see it. I'm still holding the stock. Everyone knows it's about power. Everyone knows that it's about a real tremendous turnaround story. So risk-reward, I'm still okay being long it. I choose to believe in RBC which has a $13 price target on it, which is above where I own the stock. You know, what's interesting is that when a stock gets beaten down a lot, it is small positives that move the stock a lot to the upside. I mean, well, and, and that's what he's, he's saying. It's not, you know, it shouldn't be that way. Right. Well, also, it's a very indebted company, right? So you have this issue of enterprise value moving a lot when relatively small, you know, Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the equity can move a lot, rather, when the enterprise value doesn't really move that much. I mean, to me, I, I have leaps in GE, so I know exactly what I could lose. I would bet now it's probably going to be 100% of the premium that I put in because there are leaps of 20. This is taking longer than I had anticipated, and I think that, I mean, they're, they're, they're trying to do the right thing, but um, it is possible. It's just not fixable with this capital structure. It needs to be further diluted. That is possible. Right. So well, well, the small victories are that Mr. Culp's actually moving faster than people thought he could. Um, so if you look at Biopharma, if you look at Wabtech, I mean, these have been divestitures that actually make some sense here. Look, J.P. Morgan's talking about 35 times earnings. I don't think anyone's looking at this on an earnings multiple. This is an asset play. This is a, a, a liquidity play. 
Um, and I, I think at these levels, I'm, I'm more encouraged than I'm discouraged. I'll right. put it that way. Coming up, it is the million-dollar tech bet one trader doubling down on this soaring stock. Find out what it is that has him so bullish. We are live at the NASDAQ in Times Square. Much more Fast Money still ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Symantec shares surging today after Goldman Sachs upgraded the software stock to a buy. And one trader just bet more than a million dollars that the rally is just beginning. That was a mystery stock we were talking about. Dan Nathan's over at the Plasma with the options action. Dan. Yeah, just beginning, Mel, like you said, Symantec was upgraded at Goldman Sachs. It's amazing. Out of 28 uh, brokerage firms that cover the stock, Goldman is the only buy on the stock. This is one of the most hated stocks, um, I think, out there. You know, it's obviously an antivirus company. They had a lot of issues last year. There was an internal accounting investigation that set the stock down 30% in one day last May. But Goldman thinks things are looking up right here. Options volume was 10 times average daily volume today, and there was one large trade, like you said, that caught my eye. It was a bullish roll in July expiration when the stock was trading at 24.50. There was a seller to close of 12,500 of the July 25 calls at $1.53, and they bought to open 18,750 of the July 28 calls, paying 80 cents for those. Those break even now at 28.80, up about 18% from the trading price here. So that's rolling up a winning bet here. Um, you know, let's just go to the chart. This thing is pretty fascinating. It's obviously been down in the dumps um, until this year a little bit. Look at this gap today. At one point, it was up 8%. But it's funny, when you look at that gap from the um, accounting investigation, it caught a little resistance here today. Um, this trader, obviously, identifying 28 bucks, is looking for um, a gap fill from that thing. I want to make a couple other points here. Um, Starboard, the activist investor late uh, in the summer, took an almost 6% stake. They got three board seats in the fall. There were some rumors about private equity interest in this company. And I just want to go to the 10-year chart really quickly here. Look at this uptrend that's been in place. It kind of held it just now. So playing for a gap fill back towards 28 makes sense right here. All right. Thanks for that, Dan. For more options action, check out the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up next, Final Trades. For the final trade, Tim. Yes, Mel. We talked a lot tonight about which position, which sector, excuse me, were best positioned in this next run going into earnings season. I think it is mega cap tech. I think it is Google at the best valuation against that earnings growth. Steve. McDonald's running into a little resistance here around 190, but I do believe it makes a charge towards 200 and above. I'm looking for 205, 210. Karen Feinerman. Yes. Well, I don't normally trade around, but I did want to take a little money off the table. Oh, and ahead so, of yes, earnings. Ahead of Whoa, earnings. Interest. Gunslinger. Yeah, I already know, yeah. So Delta Airlines would take some money off the table there. Wow. Dan, you know, Semantec, we don't talk about that name. I suspect Goldman's not going to be alone with that buy rating soon. They're going to report their fiscal Q4 in mid-May. I think that one is uh, going higher. All right. That does it for us here on Fast. See you back here tomorrow again at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, don't go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.